But yeah, good morning. Uh, my name is Alex. Um, so yeah, this week we're, uh, we're picking up after the Easter break. I mean, I love the colors behind us because it just speaks to you had these thousands of years of kind of monochromatic darkness and then Jesus comes, breaks everything and it's just, it's like spring goes forth from, from time immortal. So we get to live in that time and uh, it's the beginning and also the end times. It's kind of a weird oxymoron, but we're Christians, we're used to that. <laughs> so, <laughs> But yeah, so we're going to be covering James chapter 4 today. We're going to do also a little bit of chapter 5. Um, and, you know, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, James is, it's the practical book. It's, it's a wisdom book. And... It's not really about ruminating on any kind of high theology or he doesn't really have a lot of nuance in there. It's, it's the working man's advice on how we live our lives for Jesus and subsequently for his church. So it's about how we are to submit to God because any other authority is only going to lead us into trouble. So kind of just a little summary, but prior to chapter four, you know, James, he's talked about the wisdom in finding joy in our trials. He's exhorted us on the need that our faith produce works. He's kind of expunged our hearts on our inner battles of partiality and racism. He's pointed out the danger and hellfire that can be produced by our tongues. And then he kind of finished up chapter three by talking about the, the difference between heavenly wisdom and that which comes from the earth. And it's really this heaven versus earth tone that we continue into chapter four. So he's, he's exhorting us about giving up our faith in the things of this earth, things that, that are based in a broken creation, and placing our faith into God. And then explaining that when we put our faith in the things of the earth, it's what leads us into worse and worse sin. So let's just pray this morning. Lord, we just thank you for a mighty time of worship. We just thank you for your presence here. We just thank you for your face to shine upon us, Lord. We just thank you that you love us so much. And Lord, we just uh, pray this morning that we would just set our hearts upon you, Lord, and that we would lift our eyes upon you. And Lord, just that the words that I speak this morning would just be, be your words to your people. And we just pray this in your name. Amen. So if you want to open your Bibles to James chapter 4, we're going to start right in verse 1. So again, James is this book of practical advice, and in this chapter, or really in just kind of this section of the book, he's, he's in particular shooting off kind of New Testament, but, but timeless Proverbs. So they're, they're poignant, they're to the point, and, but they don't really have a lot of grammatical <laughs> structure. But I have broken this chapter down into three distinct warnings that he gives us. The warning against worldliness, and then there's the warnings to the wealthy, both type A and type B. And just for any of you that are, you know, looking at the slides, it's not a typo. We are going to go to chapter five and then come back. I didn't, uh, I didn't screw that up. Not yet. It'll happen. Give, give me a couple more minutes. But starting in verse 1, we read, So what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. 
and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this is pretty, you know, classic proverb style. Each line or kind of pair of lines has its own punch. You know, they're direct, they're commanded, and James literally is going right to the tough topics here. So the words are really meant to be a kick in the pants. And in this case, I'm sorry to say, but it's not to our backsides. Right from the first verse, James is being very specific on what body parts he knows that we do a lot of our thinking with and the cascade of sinful behavior that results. So if, in fact, you know, your, your Bible runs a little bit of cleaner language when it says body parts or member, or sometimes it just says part, understand that James actually uses the word melos, which does translate as a member of the body, but has a specific connotation of bodies given up to criminal intercourse because they are, as it were, members belonging to the harlot's body. Don't you just love Greek? I mean, in English, we just get this word with kind of like a little bit of connotation, but in the Greek, it's like there is a very serious picture of a very serious problem that deals with some very sensitive parts. So this kind of like, whenever I kind of process these things, it always leads me to ask, okay, well, where else could this word have been used? Because sometimes, you know, that the, the context can change. So you look at where it's used else in the Bible. And it turns out another place that it's used is by Jesus in the book of Matthew. So milos is actually the same word that Matthew uses in chapter 5, 29 to 30, where Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, is mentioning that if your hand or your eye is causing you to sin, you're better to cut it off than to sin. However, if you look at the actual verse up there, you'll see that after each of these specific examples, he repeats this line that says, for it is better for you to lose one of your milos of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So James and Jesus are calling out the same core issue that we all struggle with, and it's that our passions lead us into sin. These passions, as clearly spoken here, can be sexual in nature, or it could just be the covetous desires that lead us into envy and quarreling. So James, he's the practical guy. He's not the prophetic guy. But yet... He also, in these verses, managed to predict the Prosperity Bible 2,000 years before it hit the internet. So we all know the frustration of unanswered prayer, and we want things that we think will fix our lives. We're envious of those that have more than us, um, they have better than us, their lives seem simpler than ours, and so we pray to get more. And James's insight in verse 2 and 3 here is not that, you know, that he knew the term prosperity Bible, but that the Holy Spirit gave him insight into our broken nature. 
Our culture can change. Our society can change. But the one thing that doesn't change is our broken relationship. Unless you have a dedicated and active relationship with Jesus. So James knows that even in his time, people are going to hear that, ask and you shall receive, and they're going to ask for the selfish desires of their heart. However, it is sometimes a blessing that we don't get all that we ask for. Almost every Christian can admit to praying for more money and more wealth. And I think every human has had the thought that life would be a lot easier with more money or more wealth. But yet the facts are that 70% of lottery winners will end up bankrupt. And in every sociological study, it is not excessive wealth that drives happiness or contentment. It is active religious beliefs and those with strong communities of friends. So James is equating these passions to our lust for anything, things we want, things others have, so we battle with each other, and if not held in check, then they eventually lead to murder, coveting, quarreling, and what I find so easy to do in this is you just kind of dismiss this as, oh, well, this is James speaking to the unsaved. He's, he's speaking to the heathens, the barbarians at the gate, you know, the people that don't know Jesus yet. But if we go back to chapter 1, verse 1, James dedicates this letter to the church, to the saved. This is going out to the followers of Jesus Christ. So if he's calling these things out, it's because they're all happening inside the early church. And we know this to be true because of all the issues that Paul also had to address with his churches. So we can think that our faith has, you know, removed us from temptation and trouble, but it's not true. You look at the prosperity churches, you look at church leaders who are failing publicly in all sorts of sexual sins and fiscal mismanagement. We even have church pastors that have allegedly sought four higher assassins. We are no better than the early church. We might have more structure, organization, written theological studies, you know, better verse of the day apps, but we are still the same broken human beings that came from Adam, and we're going to continue until the moment we're called home. So what is our hope? When our hearts cry out, when we delve into the depths of our broken nature, well, it's God. It's Jesus, and it's the Holy Spirit that he sent to live in us so that we can break away from our nature. And as James explains it in verses 5 to 6, Or do you think that the Scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the Spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us a greater grace? Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, reading this, we're not to think that James doesn't want us to laugh or have joy. That would be both unbiblical and not in the way that God created us. 
as Rich continually tells us, as Christians, we should be the happiest people in the room because we know our Lord and we know our Savior. James even told us to count our trials as joy, although I'm working hard at that one. (laughs) But what James is saying to us is that even though something may cause us joy, it doesn't mean it comes from God. Or as I translate it, just because you're not getting struck by lightning doesn't mean God doesn't want to change that habit. Sins are not casual things to ignore. They are not things that we should plan to fix later. Because if we're of faith, sins are serious charges that we should be ashamed of and should cause us to weep and mourn. And this is why we're told to hold each other accountable. Not to judge, because James goes on into verses 11 and 13 to speak to that, but to work with one another. James was speaking to a church that was not only acting contemptibly, but it was also being very casual in their sins. Maybe they were confident in their salvation and thought that salvation alone was enough. But if we believe in the words and actions of Jesus, then our actions have to follow our faith. So we're now going to kind of jump ahead to chapter 5. And this is James' warning to the wealthy, what I call type A. This is not the outgoing, proactive, highly organized type A. This is just what I call the first abuse of wealth, monetary wealth. So come now, you rich people. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will serve as testimony against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld from you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived for pleasure on the earth and lived luxuriously. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous person. He offers you no resistance." Now, again, we have to pull back and say, okay, James is not saying all wealth is bad and all people with wealth are bad. He is calling out some particularly timeless habits and traps that wealthy people fall prey to. One, that they put their faith in their material wealth, that they have lost their passion for Christ and that serving his kingdom, and they've become complacent due to that comfort. Now, I personally think this comfort could describe almost everybody in the room because we live in the highest level of sufficiency and comfort that the world has ever seen. It took a global pandemic for us to ever see empty spaces on our grocery store shelves. And most of those were actually caused by our own selfish hoarding more than any true lack. Plus, what were we really missing? Did anybody starve? Or did we just have one week without that brand of food? Did anyone ever run out of toilet paper? (laughs) But yet we collect and we save and we invest all to have more stuff and more wealth. And yet none of these are bad on their own. It's about our heart and what we're putting our faith into. For there's no doubt that the world operates on money. But yet we must be careful to put our faith in the source of wealth, the source of wealth, not into the wealth itself. 
So this led me to kind of think, I wonder how many professing Christians, and I use that in the very broad Christian term, would sell their faith for unlimited wealth. Would you sell your faith for a million dollars? What about 10, 100? How about a billion dollars? You never have to worry about anything financial again. Everything you want to do, you can do. So if your answer is hopefully no, (laughs) and we value our salvation so highly, why don't we trust God with our full tithe? Why don't we trust him to pay our bills? Why do we hold back for vacations instead of building for our ministries? Now, this church is an above-average giving church, but yet the stats are there that if every person in here is tithing, then on average, everyone here makes less than minimum wage. So if you're in that place where you keep telling yourself that you just need to make a bit more money so that you can tithe, have a bit more of a nest egg before you can trust God, then you've missed the point. And your faith is in the nest egg and not in God to be the source of your needs. And the slippery slope in that mindset is that a bit more money at the end of the day is not going to make you satisfied because you get that little bit more money, it's going to go out the door. And then you're going to need a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Those that put their faith in money will get corrupted and just desire more money. And they will do whatever they can to make sure that happens. So if we go back to our verses, James continues speaking of how the wealthy use their wealth to ensure they stay wealthy. We see all the time that in the news, celebrities, sports stars, large business owners all seem to get away with what seems to be a different set of rules. They take advantage. They use their wealth as a weapon to get wealthier. And again, I want to say God is not against the wealthy. So we have biblical examples. Lydia, she used her wealth and influence to support Paul in the early church. Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his tomb to honor Jesus, and even in a bonus, got it back three days later, lightly used. (laughs) But what James is calling out here is a worldly view with money at the center and not God. So finally, we're going to finish up this morning by going back to chapter 4 and looking at his other warning to the wealthy, those that are wealthy in time. So that's right, young people. You might have no money, but James is still coming for you. (laughs) So come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, for you are just vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So at first glance, it seems like, okay, we're talking about another business scheme here for money. But the crux of this verse is actually line 14, where we read, For you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. For just as the earthly-minded, monetary wealthy put their faith in their bank accounts to save them, so the young are tempted to put off the callings of God because of their faith in their wealth of time. 
I will do that when I'm older. I just need to graduate first. I just want to have some fun first before I get serious. And while it is easiest to pick on the young, because who doesn't pick on the millennials at this point, we all have things that we're putting off until we get married. We have kids. The kids are older. The kids move out. We retire. But a lot of this is predicated on assuming that we have 70 to 80, maybe even 100 years of life and perfect health. And the reality is much more sober. James is reminding us that we are weighing our limited earthly years against eternity. So even if technology gives us the chance to live a thousand years, congratulations, you're now all Methuselah. (laughs) Yet while a thousand years is immense to our perspective, it is still nothing compared to eternity. We don't need a mathematics teacher to tell you that a thousand divided by infinity is just a really, really small number. You can't actually calculate it. It's just zero is how they write it. And remember, we are all eternal. We were created as eternal beings, and it's just up to our time on earth to decide where we're going to spend that eternity. As Christians, we love to sing and quote about how Jesus promised us eternal life, but I think it's worth mentioning that it's not the eternal part that's new and that he's promising there. It's the life, an eternal life of joy, worship, and being in the presence of our creator and that which loves us most in the world. So this is all the discussion of what happens at the end. But if we want to deal with the right now, do we really feel that God has asked us to do something so horrendous that we don't want to seek his plan? That he has planned a miserable, boring life of servitude for us? A few weeks ago, we spent time going through our prophetic words with Clem. And, you know, being part of that weekend, I think we all did, but you got to hear bits and pieces of many people's, you know, words. And I don't ever remember the words boring, simple, small, or homebound in any of those. Instead, I remember lines like, it's beyond what you can imagine. There is a large plan for you. Those words were filled with vague but concrete plans of meeting people, going places, and being provided for. James wants us to embrace this by giving up our faith in the things of the world. Don't trust your career to provide for you. Trust God to use your career to provide for you. If you feel like your life is too busy to make time for God, ask him to show you what you should give up to make time. Yes, God may ask you to give up something you enjoy. It may be a lot of fun. Favorite TV show, a hobby, your favorite video game, Instagram. I don't know what he wants to shift in your life. But if you ask, he will let you know. Maybe he's already been telling you and you just haven't wanted to listen. But the end result is this. No matter how much you love a show, a game, hobby, whatever it is, 
if you don't believe that spending time with Jesus is better than that, why are you trying to go to heaven? Amid all the warnings against these, you know, very specific actions, James is calling us to a higher calling. James is not pulling any punches, and he, like us all, knows that it's our desires that lead us into sin. While circumstance and unconscious habit can play a part in our sinful nature, the real reason we sin is because we want to. We trade the long-term treasures of heaven for short-term, guilt-laden pleasures of our choice. James is pointing out that we cannot take our money or our youth with us. Our passions are like vapor compared to the passion of a Savior that went to the cross for us. When we get to heaven, God will not care who has the most stuff, visited the most places, saw the most sunsets, ate the best food, or felt the most secure. He is going to ask one question. Do you know me? Did you spend time to get to know me? So at this point, I got to this point in my sermon, and I was, this is Friday morning, and I'm like trying to figure out this piece to wrap this whole thing up. And I think I was telling Rich actually on Friday, a newsletter came into my email. And it's like one of those newsletters, like you get like one every day, you read kind of one every two weeks. But anyways, this title like grabbed me. And it was, the piece of the title said, we live in a trade-in society. And it summarized, that line just summarized so clearly and beautifully the characteristics of the culture that both James and God were kind of just putting into all of these words here and that I was wrestling with this week to kind of bring together. So here's a quote from the, the article. Whether we shop for phones, gyms, or even relationships, ours is an age that treasures the words, no commitment necessary, and cancel any time. We are a trade-in society where the promise of being able to eventually replace anything or anyone lies underneath all of our experiences, even our spiritual lives. And of course, millions of us go to church with expectations and demands tailored by the trade in society. We'll hang around for the music and preaching that speaks to us, but membership is time-consuming and serving is far too inconvenient. Serving Jesus is inconvenient. He, he, he literally told us that. I mean, he, he gave the worst sales pitch ever. He's like, it's going to be hard. You're going to get persecuted. Like, if you kind of read it from a logical point of view, you, you're just sitting there going like, okay, Lord, you might have wanted to put a little bit more rosy picture around this. But at the end of the day, there's also grace, mercy, salvation. And, you know, he has a pretty good package for an excellent price. But the reason that serving Jesus is inconvenient is that it means we have to stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about others. It means that we have to put off the quick, the easy, and immediate and look into the things that are hard, slow, and only come in the perfection of God's time. But this does not mean that we trade fun for dull serving or joy for dour Christianity. We find joy... And God gives us a new joy, 
a complete joy, a peace, a contentment, and that only is going to come from following in his ways. So we're going to kind of conclude, James, by reading verse 17. So for the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. Remember, James is not telling us these things because he wants to create a list of do-nots. He's not trying to recreate a New Testament mosaic laws. I mean, he and his brethren have just been released from that legalistic mindset. He is pointing out specific examples of the hypocrisy in declaring faith in Jesus Christ and then doing none of the actions that Jesus taught and showed us. James is not talking about Sunday. This is about your Monday to Saturday. How are your actions seen by all around you when you're at work? What is driving your habits, filling your time, consuming your thoughts? What are you putting your faith into? Passions? Youth? Wealth? James is explaining how faith in Christ leads to practical lifestyle changes. And we see that same pattern in both the monetary and those that have time. It's this pattern of procrastination and putting things off until you have more and a bit more of something. You already have Jesus. You already have the Holy Spirit. Is there actually something else you can possibly need? Or is it you just want something more? John Piper summarized our worldly focus in this way. One of the evidences of not drinking deeply from Jesus is the instability of constantly moving from one thing to the next, seeking to fill the void. You may be going through sexual partners. You may be going through friends. You may be going through jobs. You may be going through churches, just one after another. You may be going through hobbies, hairstyles, wardrobes, or cars. You may be going through locations of where you live all because there is no deeply contented identity in Christ. Sports teams trade players, fire coaches all the time in an attempt to approve their odds of winning a championship. Yet, if you guaranteed them at the beginning of a season that they were going to win the final trophy, do you think they would make any changes even in the midst of a tough part of the season? No because they would have the confidence of the guarantee. Would anyone bet on those other teams, knowing that they cannot win? No. (laughs) Well, we as Christians have a guaranteed, absolute, cannot fail assurance of final triumph in Jesus. We also have a guaranteed, absolute, cannot fail assurance that the world will fade away. And that's why we can be a people who resist a trade-in culture. And in doing so, bear witness to a better society, one in which every tear is wiped away and every secret desire fulfilled by Jesus. And this is why James is spending so much time to speak to us and speak to the church and spell out these situations, that we can recognize where our faith falls short and place it into a trinity that will never fall short. We can take our eyes up off the things of this earth and put them up onto God's glory. Let's pray. 
Lord, we just thank you this morning that you point out the things that, that we do and we selfishly do and we unconsciously do. And Lord, we just, we like doing. Lord, we, we, we look and we enjoy the short-term things. But Lord, we just pray that in each and every day that you would just show us how to turn ourselves a little bit more onto you, to lift our eyes up just a little bit more, to set our eyes just a little bit further on the horizon. I just see this picture of when you're learning to drive, you, you just focus on the first 10 feet in front of you, right? I mean, you're, you're not even taking in anything else. You're just focused on the 10 feet in front of you. And one of the things you have to do is when you teach someone to drive is to teach them to look up and look up past what's happening immediately in front of them because you're moving at a speed that you need to be able to see what's coming. And I think that's what the Lord is saying in this, is that we need to lift our eyes up. You know, and it's like the words of the, the song, we, we run to the Father and we go from life and we run away from death. We, we go towards joy and we leave behind pain. And so, Lord, we just thank you this morning that our hearts can be set upon you. Again, we just thank you that you show up and you're here every time that we ask. And Lord, we just lay this all before you and ask that as we go forth this week, that you would just work in us each and every day and in each and every way. Amen. I hope this morning you felt the weight of the word upon your heart, upon your mind. That's what the ministry of the word is supposed to do. That's what the preaching of the gospel is meant to do is to bring the power and the conviction of the living words of God upon us so that we change. You know, James is actually teaching us in the tradition of the rabbis. And the rabbinic tradition was not to focus so much on theology. In the West, the Greek way, the Greek system is about theology and systemizing things. And there's nothing wrong with that. But do you know that the rabbis are not called theologians, they're called sages. And why are they called sages? Because sages focus on practicality. How to take truth and turn it into living. And so the gospel really is after behavioral change. Not in order to prove that you're good to God, but as evidence of your salvation. And so James is preaching out of that tradition. If the gospel is real, if the risen Jesus is real, if you really profess that you're following after him, these are evidences of the grace of God working in you and you distinctly change. And how you steward your money, how you steward your time, this, this is convicting stuff, right? I think every single one of us thought about, oh, I need to change that. I need to change this. Make it intentional in your life when you leave the service today about making some changes in how you steward your finances. Maybe it's time to go from that 3% giving to 8% giving or 10% giving. Maybe you've been spending too much time on yourself just indulging in all the stuff that you love and the Holy Spirit touched you and you go, you know what? I do need to just separate that from my life. This is all good stuff. This is called sowing into your spiritual life and you will reap a harvest of righteousness. Don't think that you're giving up something and oh my gosh, I'm so sad, I'm losing that. You're gonna gain so much more back. And so Lord Jesus, we ask for your grace to come in a fresh way 
Lord, we feel the pull of heaven. We feel the pull, God, of your glory calling us deeper in these days. God, if one church did all the things that we heard this morning, there would be revival in the city. Just one church. So touch us, God. Touch your whole church in Vancouver to go to the next level. The next level of zeal. The next level of joy. The next level, God, of walking in your word as we heard this morning. Thank you, God, for each and every person that's in our service this morning, that's watching online. Let us go, Father God, with these words in our hearts, causing us to be changed from glory to glory. We thank you now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great week.